All right, you are listening to the Maker's Quest podcast. I'm Brian Benham. And I am Greg Porter. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about how to learn how to learn. That sounds like I just repeated myself, but I think when we're approached with a new task or when we're approached with a new skill, sometimes we have to relearn the process of learning and understand what it's going to take from a learner's perspective to acquire this new skill or to learn a new thing. And I know throughout life, uh, I've always called myself a lifelong learner, and I'm pretty proud of that. And everybody always asks, you're into so many different things. You, you, you do so much different stuff. What's going on there? And I think part of it is I get bored easily, but the other part is I really enjoy learning. and I enjoy the challenge of bringing on a new skill. And Brian, I'm guessing with all the different work that you do, you encounter uh, this predicament or this challenge. Uh, probably fairly often, have you got a an example of a a project or a skill or something you were trying to do that you that you, when you approached it, you had to really think about what is my approach to learning this? Uh, well, I I think being in the custom furniture business or just in the custom making of anything business, that uh, every project that's custom, you're not always doing the same thing twice. So you're always being forced to learn. Um, to kind of step back from your question a little bit, uh, what kind of uh, came to mind right away when we were started talking about what we wanted to talk about tonight was learning new software. Uh, I mm, teach yeah. a uh, SketchUp class, and I had a student that I could tell was just frustrated coming in because he came from the 2D CAD environment and wasn't used to the 3D environment. And so the tools uh, just had a different look and feel to them, and they kind of operated a little bit different. And drawing on the third axis uh, with the extrude tool was totally different than if you wanted to draw something that looked three-dimensional in a, with a 2D drawing environment and so i kind of had to like coach them along like like you you need to set aside your preconceived notions of what this software can do based on what your past experience is and just kind of come in with a blank slate like okay i don't know anything about the software let's pretend i've never drawn anything before and just look at each of the tools what does this tool does and just kind of start playing around with with that tool and I think you've probably experienced this being an architect for so many years as you've moved from different firms or different softwares. When you started, you probably started with a T-square, right? And then yeah. moved through different softwares. So you've probably had to learn several different softwares. So I'm curious if you've had a similar experience to where you had to like, okay, this is not operating the way that I thought it would. Yeah. Uh, you know, you bring up the T-square operating <laughs> OS <laughs> 1.0. Yeah. <laughs> Analog. Um, when I started school, that was that was how we started was on, you know, on the drafting table, T squares, uh, and jewel tip pens, things of that nature, keeping your pencil sharp every single line that you draw. And my class was really one of the first classes to go through school that started drawing by hand. And by the time we graduated, everything was being done on the computer. And so it it was an interesting thing. Number one, you look at the institution, the University of Kansas, where I went. There we go. They're in the yeah. they're in the basketball tournament right now. So, uh, but but at the University of Kansas, looking at the staff that they had teaching architecture, they were really adept at teaching how to draw with pens and pencils. And when it came to teaching how to draw with the computer and understanding it through that lens, they didn't have the skills and the language and the software know-how to even share that type of information with students. So when we talk about learning how to learn or relearning how to learn something, it was a little bit up to the students at that point to realize that I have to approach this a different way. I have to seek out some of these things that aren't, not that, not that university professors ever hand you anything on a silver platter and say, this is how it's done, son. Um, but but they do point you in the right direction because they have 15 or 20 or 30 years of experience. And when it came to the digital drafting world, most of them had zero years experience. And so we really had to had to seek that out as, as students and look for those opportunities to use technology to help us through. And, you know, that's even true today. I look at 
at the university students and what they're doing with laser cutters in their studios and 3D printers in their studios and things of that nature that are completely different. But I'll back up and say one of the most important things, I think, to approaching this idea of learning how to learn is knowing what you don't know. And, and what I mean by that is a lot of people will say when you're new at something, you think you're really good at it because you don't know what you don't know. You don't have that list of, oh, here's everything that I should know. And I have none of those things checked off. And I think when you're approaching something that's completely foreign to you, going into a third dimension or getting into a project type that is very different or a different medium that you're used to is understanding all of those things that you need to know, maybe not to master, but to be proficient in that medium or in that technology or or in that vein of whatever it is you're doing. And once you understand, okay, here are the things I should know, then you can understand how do I approach getting all of those skills or checking all of those boxes for things that I should know. And there's, of course, the 80-20 rule, right? At some point, close to 80%, you're going to be fairly proficient. You're not going to know it all, but you're going to understand most of it. And I think approaching new things, that that approach for me has been very successful with regard to to, to finding not easy success by any stretch, but but stretch in a, in a shorter amount or success in a shorter stretch of time. There we go. I'm guessing you teach software. You're dealing with students all the time who don't know things, but you're also dealing with new versions of the software that do different things. How, how do you handle those situations, Brian? Uh, you know, I, I think when I see something new come along, I'm immediately uh, excited that it's something new. And then also there's a little bit of fear in me that like, Oh, it changed. Like, it's like, what if I can't learn the new thing? Or what if I don't find the new thing useful or, or someone like a competitor of mine in the furniture business finds the, how to use that thing better or that thing better. So there's always like this little fear. And I think that's kind of human nature to resist change and fear that, that, uh, um, you might not be able to stay, stay up with everything that, uh, the world's just going to pass you on by. And uh, I think uh, I've seen that, well, I don't think I know I've seen that happen to a lot of people that they just get paralyzed by this fear that the world's going to pass them by and it prevents them from learning new things. So yeah, so I, yeah, I have seen people get paralyzed by their fear um, that, uh, that the world's just going to pass them by. And I think a good example of that was when I was a kid, um, the Mac computer, personal computer became uh came to be it was like the first really popular personal computer and uh my dad worked construction he worked uh at the time he uh, worked in the bid office and also did a lot of drafting and so they bought mac computers for everybody and so he had to just like figure out how to learn how to use um this new fangled thing that he's never used before because it's just like you know the the first time that anybody had ever really seen a personal computer and uh, so they bought all the uh, the the guy's uh, computers and he brought it home. And uh, I could tell that he just kept getting frustrated with the thing because he was trying to use it to draw his shop drawings for so the shop could build the things that he was bidding on and needed to have built. Um, but it wasn't like the T-square. It was a totally different thing. And so I could tell he could get frustrated. And then he would go off to work. So this thing would be sitting there all day. And so I was like, well, I'm going to, play with this computer and learn how to use it. And since I didn't have any worry that the world was going to pass me by, or I didn't have to produce anything at the end of the day, um, I could just sit there and play with it without worry. Um, and I didn't even really worry if I broke it, you know, cause like I'm a kid who like, you don't worry about those <laughs> things really when you're, when you're like eight years old or whatever, however old I was eight or 10 years old when that thing came to the house. And uh, I just played around with that thing so much that I learned how to to use that computer to where I could kind of help my dad along with his learning curve as well. So I think just like making sure you stay relaxed and just play with just play with it, just to see what it does, and just play with everything you possibly can on that thing, just to see see what happens. Stay curious, and you'll you'll learn new things a lot faster. I think staying curious is just like a huge key to 
learning something new. I agree. I think interestingly enough, our brains are extraordinarily plastic. We can learn anything. I, I'm, I've convinced myself of that over time, that anyone can learn anything given enough time and enough resources. And computers are definitely that way. And I'll, I'll share that anytime I feel myself saying or or conveying the idea of, you know what, I think I can just do it the old way and it's probably faster to do it the old way. I, I usually try and step back and challenge myself. And, and always one of the things that goes through my mind is, do you think these software companies or these hardware companies would come out with something that's going to slow you down? Are they going to sell any product? Is Adobe going to sell a new version of Photoshop if it slows you down? Or are they going to sell it if it gives you more tools and a faster way to get to an end result? And the answer is always, you know, whatever this new version is, is probably going to speed you up and give you a set of tools. And so I, I fight a little bit of that old dog new trick things every once in a while. But anytime, anytime I get that feeling going through my veins that eh, I could just stick with version 3.2 and not upgrade to version four, uh, I try and back up and say, you know what, it's probably worth your time to look at version four and not just give it the once over, but really look into it and see what it can do to help you. Because as you look into those new tools, there's a pretty darn good chance that it's addressing something you do as a repetitive task that it, it can either automate or it can speed you up. And I think along the lines of learning how to learn, that's one of the things that I always try to uncover is, yeah, they have the hot little list of what's new in this version, but there's usually some things that are a little bit further under the surface that if you start digging, it's like, oh, you know what? This one tool does have a new spinner that really helps me do X, Y, or Z. And I think, I think that's a a very important part of learning how to learn is is convincing yourself that number one, there's some value in what it is that you're doing, and then number two, uncover and uncover how to exploit that new value, and that'll that'll keep you driving. And the more you use something, of course, the more things you uncover as you go through and and continue to poke on things. Yeah, I I think uh, tangent to that is also understanding the software or what that software's purpose is. Like uh, there's all kinds of drafting programs out there and I'm, I've been learning other ones. My, my main go-to is SketchUp because it's the most familiar to me. I've used it for the longest, so I can just open that thing up and just draw all kinds of stuff. But when I get into like laser engraving or laser cutting or CNC stuff, that's not the ideal platform it will do those things so now i'm forcing myself to learn other software uh because i know that it's a great way to iterate on my design but when i need to go to fabrication i need to look at something else that's a little more exacting that's gonna that's gonna get the job done better and faster as i've learned new softwares i thought for sure that i would never really be able to use one over the other but now I kind of just use them in tangent with each other um, that I've gotten proficient enough with like Adobe Illustrator that I can draw all kinds of stuff just as fast in Adobe Illustrator now as I can in SketchUp uh, when it's in the 2D plane, of course, because Illustrator is sure. a 2D modeling tool. <laughs> this is to, um, but yeah, so um, I lost my train of thought where I was going with that. Oh yeah, understanding what that software can do and know, like I know that Adobe Illustrator is not a 3D modeling tool, but it does great for creating tool paths for laser engraving. If you want to laser engrave a text, like a client wants an, ins an inscription on a box or something or something like that, it's like the perfect tool just to pop that thing open and type it out, convert to tool path, and you're, you're off, off to the laser engraver. Even better than like uh, VCarve, which is designed to do yeah. the same thing, but Adobe has so many more fonts and so much other... Uh, more complicated things to it that allows you to do more things and format it faster. Yeah. And the the thing I've learned too, Brian, is I think there's there's a little bit of a pyramid in terms of learning, right? There, the base of the pyramid is learn to use the tool like the inventor thought it should be used. And that's going through the tutorials and kind of following the lead of, of what it is that the tool is intended for. But the more familiar you get with, and I'm talking about pieces of software, but it can, it can apply to all kinds of different things. I think if you have more tools in your tool belt, more pieces of software that you understand well, at some point you can look at the process from 
point A to point Z and ask yourself, can I take this part of the process, move it to a different piece of software and get a better result and bring that into this software later? You know, we all know that most software now have translators to go to 50,000 different projects or sorry, 50,000 other different software packages, translating, exporting, importing back and forth. And sometimes there's a way to short circuit all of the headaches that you might have in one piece of software because they're not so good at uh, three-dimensional nerves, splines that turn into surfaces. But you have that piece of software, but it doesn't do a great job of cutting out things on the laser. So you can do something something in one piece and then eventually translate it into another. I think you know as you go through that pyramid of really understanding your tools, and going from proficiency to uh, what I would call mastering is you start to to pick apart how you do things and what that process is and really um, start to uh, you start to refine the process. Uh, so so you know there's one thing getting through the process, but then refining it into something that really uh, again enhances your speed enhances the quality of what you're doing or maybe the abilities of what you're doing by using multiple tools to solve a problem. It's it's not unlike, you know, the the old joke of when, when you're a hammer, everything's a nail. And I think that happens in a lot of software packages is, is some of the software packages are one trick ponies or they're a hammer. And so everything's a nail. You're going to solve the, the problem the same way every time. And, and you may lose out on some things where if you have an arsenal of tools. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you need to do something besides drive nails. Maybe you need to to trim some things or chamfer some corners or cross cut versus, uh, um, you know, cut with the grain. And uh, and I think again, as you learn things, as you you put that together, you should always be on the lookout for how can I enhance one software package or one set of tools with another. Yeah, and then not be afraid to to move to those new softwares or to explore those new softwares. Uh, kind of kind of touch back base on when you were talking about uh, when you hear yourself being that old curmudgeon that doesn't want to change. Like that's, I think that's one of the biggest things that will hold you back and the world will just pass, pass you by. Like when the 3d printers uh, first came out, I thought, Oh, that's kind of cool, you know, but like not, not for me. And now I have one and it's like the, the coolest thing. Like it was just one more thing that added to my arsenal of, of being able to build anything. Right? Like if I could, if I can draw it now, I can print it. And if I can print it, I can see how, how it is made in the physical, even if it's a bolt that's not strong enough or something that's not strong enough as a piece of plastic, but being able to draw it and then print it to be able to see how it functions and how it looks in the 3D uh, can help me figure out how to build it. So my next step now is if I can ever um, afford some kind of milling machine uh, is to get a milling machine in my shop to start making like my own hinges. Like one of the, uh, really nice hinges to work with is Brusso hardware, but they're like $70 a hinge. Like if I can learn how to machine at that level, then I can just machine my own style. And I don't, I don't need to spend $70 to do it. I can spend $14,000 on a, on a mill instead. Yeah. But uh, uh, I, I agree, Brian. Sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you there. No, go ahead. Um, and, and I'll share one of the other things that I think is incredibly important when we're learning things is, is the first step in learning is to understand the language. And sometimes that's the language of, you know, words that you don't use on a normal basis, tenon, rabbit, uh, dado, those types of things. But, but sometimes it's being able to speak in the language of the material or the thing that you're trying to work with. And I would point out when I was at Autodesk's uh, build space out in Boston doing my innovation sabbatical there. One of the things that I I shared as a goal is I wanted to increase my fluency in all things digital fabrication. And what does that mean? Well, you don't know until you get there and you start thinking about it. And one of the ways in which I immersed myself and started learning all the new technologies that I was surrounded by um, was every day. It was, you, you need to make a 3D print every day. And it needs to be different than what you did yesterday. And it needs to solve a real problem. And I know I've told this story on the podcast before, 
but it goes for any type of new thing that you want to learn is you really have to surround yourself and immerse yourself in the idea of what it is you're trying to learn and apply that learning to several different problems. I can still remember on the first day I showed up in Boston, part of part of what I wanted to do was video document the entire process. And, and when I started my four-month sabbatical, I started off saying I was going to do a daily vlog about what I was learning and share it so that everybody back at my office could see those things and incorporate them into their daily work or incorporate the thought of doing them into their daily work so that we started to speak that language as a firm. Unfortunately, editing a daily vlog and doing the work that I had to do was almost impossible. There weren't enough hours in the day to do it, but I still wound up videoing a lot of the work I did. And I showed up with a, uh, uh, a gorilla pod stand and a huge DSLR camera. And every time I would put the camera on there, the stand would fall over because the camera wasn't centered weight wise. And so that, that first day in the studio, I said, well, I have to solve this problem and I'm going to force myself to solve it with a 3d printer. I don't know what that means yet, but we're going to do it. And, you know, I wound up designing a mounting plate that would go between the tripod and the camera with a big slot in it that would allow the camera to move back and forth and be balanced. And I think I printed five or six iterations of that thing. And on, on the last one, all of a sudden it had detail in it. It had chamfered edges. It, it looked like a part that was going to be ready for manufacture all within the course of an eight hour day, or maybe it was a 10 hour, 12 hour day, but all, all within a single day uh, period. And it was, you know, how do you learn to learn or how do you, how do you open yourself up for this new thing? Well, I think, you know, understanding that language and forcing yourself to speak that language, I had never used a 3D printer in my life before then, or a slicer software or <laughs> any of those things and, and just headlong into it. That was one way that I found quite effective. And as I was there in Boston over the course of four months, uh, I came away with a a stack of 3D printed things that, you know, barely fit in my suitcase by the time it was time to go home. So anyway, that was a, that was a cool way to approach something like that. Yeah. So uh, back to your, your statement that you had to force yourself to keep going or force yourself to um, be aware of new things. I think uh, not just learning how to learn, I think that could apply to just your life in general. And if you practice that in your life, it will also help you learn things. Um, just like social media, when Instagram first came out, I was slow to get on Instagram because I was like, yeah, Facebook's fine. And then TikTok came out and I was slow to get on TikTok. I was like, yeah, it's a new thing. I don't like this real stuff. Um, and so I've always been like just behind and I've never really built a very big audience because I've had that mentality of like, yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to learn how to do it. I don't want to, I don't want to put myself out there like that. But, um, uh, and I think that's helped me, helped me back in a lot of, a lot of ways. I, so I think now when I look at my YouTube channel, publishing shorts, my last two inquiries for commissions came from people that saw my shorts, even though there's a whole bunch of old curmudgeons woodworkers on there that just came to watch long style format woodwork woodworking they don't want to see the shorts in their feed but uh they're not paying my bills and they're just being <laughs> stuck in the past so now when i look at this chat gpt thing that's come out this ai it's like do i use that do i start playing with that and i look back at like what shorts have done on youtube that once i started doing it it started helping me get more business and i look at my uh Instagram and TikTok following that's really small because I was slow to get on the platform. I'm thinking, yeah, I, I need to start playing with this AI. I need to learn this. Whether I use it in my designs is still yet to be determined, but I need to be aware of what it can do and I need to learn learn how it is. So if if the world really shifts hard that direction, then I'm right there in the middle of the shift. Well, so let's talk about chat GTP for just a second or GPT. I don't, I don't know how the letters go there, but GPT, I think. GPT. Yeah. Um, let's talk about that for a second. I've, I've now done three projects with chat uh, GPT. <laughs> I'm going to screw it up every time I say it. I've now done three projects with that, that AI software. And um one of them was a simple, I was working on a slogan for my guitar company, Skyscraper Guitars. Mm -hmm. And I came up with three or four or five of them and 
kept hitting the same note every time, right? Like, it, well, this sounds just like the last three that I came up with and was trying to get outside of the box. So one of the first things I typed into the chat window there was, I need a slogan for skyscraper guitars. Or I, I didn't say a slogan. I need 10 slogans for skyscraper guitars. And it, in the course of 15 seconds, spit out 10 different ideas. Of those 10, maybe two were all right. So then I asked it to come up with 20 of them. And out of that 20, there were four or five that were pretty good. And it wasn't an end solution. The ones that it came up with, I would have never said, yep, that's going to be, that's going to be my slogan. But it gave me the foundation for another brainstorming session. Now I had 20 different things that I could build on and really come up with some good ones. And out of that, um, you know, I wound up narrowing it to four good ideas. And it was like, okay, I'm going to run these in front of some friends. And we did a little more editing. And all of a sudden I've got a, a slogan for my skyscraper guitars company that would not have existed in its form without chat GTP. Uh, the other ones that, that I did were software and website related. So I wanted to do a fret calculator. So how far is one fret from the next fret? And I've seen these before. I know the math behind it. And I put together something for my website that that had that, but it didn't really look that great because of the way that, you know, I, I can only write what I can write. And I'm not a computer programmer. So I hopped on, on the chat window and said, make me a program, make me a JavaScript program that does these things. And it prints out in a table with this format. And after several iterations, probably 15 iterations, because basically it, it comes up with some code, you see what it does. And then you say, well, I need you to change this piece to that. I want you to make the text orange. I want you to make the boxes eight characters wide instead of six. And all of a sudden I had a working JavaScript program that did everything that I wanted it to do. And back to the old curmudgeon side of things, if I would have, ah, you know, that's for the kids or, or whatever, I would have never embraced it and walked away with a usable tool for a website to sell things uh, without having embraced that technology. And I'll go one step further. I know I've seen some graphic design AI out there and I really have looked at that. Like what, what would it take to incorporate that into some of the stuff I do? And it's fascinating. It's most of those are for pay, which is fine. I, I think, you know, whoever wrote that code is, you know, next genius and deserves to be paid for their work. But um, it, it's kind of like, do I really need that? You know, is there anything in my arsenal that would benefit from from the uh, AI graphic design? The answer is probably no, but there is AI 3D design that's helping architects now. And I saw a video about it this morning for the first time. There's been sort of parametric things that have been out there that uh, generative design, I think is what they would call that at Autodesk. And it's okay, but now it's starting, the AI is starting to help you with styles. Like here's the form factor. Can you show this to me in five different styles with this color siding, with this color roofing? Maybe maybe give it a little more glass and some detail. And I watched a guy iterate through an entire design for a cabin, slowly tweaking what he was putting into the chat window. And the images that are coming out of it would have taken me two days to create. And he's creating them within a half an hour. So it's not creating the architecture but it's iterating and giving new ideas and saying, you know, why don't you try this, try this, try this, and then being able to render those things almost in real time. I see that as designers, as people who make things as an incredibly valuable tool to what we're doing. We give it a starting block and the AI helps us iterate very quickly through several ideas. Yeah. So uh, similarly, uh, 10 years ago, everybody was talking about, uh, maybe even further than 10 years now, but everybody's talking about you should have a blog for your website or that's attached to your website because you can write articles and then that will help your SEO and it'll drive traffic. So I've had a blog for 12 years or so now and uh, it's just fumbled along, right? Like I, I, I never know what to write. But uh, this weekend, I kind of dove into the chat GPT thing and I was like, okay, write me an article about arts and crafts style. And so it wrote an article and it was okay. It was obviously very keyword stuffed, which would probably get me flagged in Google. Um, and then uh, I said, okay, we'll write an article about uh, a mission style furniture. And they were, they were formatted almost exactly the same. So it was obvious that 
it's going to be like, okay, this is what its format is. But then as I continue to play with it, I realized that um, the chat uh, box is a conversation that you're having yeah. with the computer that you need to start asking it more questions. So like, like uh, it would tell you about the Morris chair. And I was like, okay, like you use uh, the Morris chair as an example of uh, mission style furniture. And I was like, okay, well, tell me more about the Morris chair. And I always thought that the Morris chair was developed by the guy with the last name Morris that worked for the Morris company. Nah, it was, it was, it was invented by somebody else. And so I was like, huh, that's interesting. So I have to fact check it. Right. And it, and the facts did check out. Right. Uh, and so I just kept going down through this rabbit hole and I ended up with maybe 15 different articles that are deep down rabbit holes that I don't think I would have ever even heard some of these people I'd never even heard of uh, just through history. And of course, I'm fact checking as I'm going because I want to make sure if I publish these posts that they'll be accurate to it. Um, so it's just like this amazing thing just to keep asking it questions like, like, uh, what's the green and green in style? And I didn't mention anything about cloud lifts, but I know a cloud lift is the green and green style and the ebony plugs are the green and green style. So then I'd ask it a question well, how did the cloud lift get its name? And some of the things like that, where there's not a lot of information on the internet, it struggled with, but other things, it would just elaborate on what it said. So it was very much a conversation with the computer that I thought was just super interesting. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, let, let's dive into the AI stuff for just a minute. Uh, I think it's fun to yeah. talk about, but, but you say that and, and it's amazing when you, when you approach this new thing, I think, you know, AI is going to be new for all of us, right? It didn't exist three years ago or it didn't exist in a, in a format where we could access it and learning what that can do for you and how far you can push it. And all of those things is going to be, I think, paramount to everyone's success. And it's not that you're going to have to use AI. I just think it's going to make us better at what we do. And in some ways, when we design, when we put things down on paper, a lot of times we put things down as option one, option two, option three, option four, from a from a perspective of, well, I could do it this way. I could do it that way. I could do it that way. I think where, where some of the AI is going to come into play is giving us those options and allowing us to be more of an editor. And so it's going to be, we write we write the the outline for the essay, so to speak. It fills in the blanks and then we edit and refine. And, and it takes away what I would call the bulk of the labor part that, that's really just putting the stuffing in where you come up with the framework, it gives you all the stuffing, and then we come back and edit and and pull out the bad pieces and and refine it. And it's a totally different way to think about everything. And it's, you know, can be design, it can be writing, it can be uh, again, coding or anything like that. And I, I've seen a number of people who've written articles about how the AI can, can put together their framework for coding faster than they can type. So why wouldn't you have them do it? It's, it's just all the, the boring work where you're basically copying your knowledge of a textbook into the computer with you know the words or functions that you want to use. Let the computer do that stuff. It's smart enough to do it, but you're the one controlling how do those functions interact with the user? How do those functions uh, deliver something that's a value to whoever wants to use your program or your website or whatever it is that you're doing? Yeah, I think it uh, removes like the writer's block as well. Like mm -hmm. each time I publish a uh, YouTube video, I have to write a little, so, well, I don't have to, but like if you want it to perform well, you got to write a little summary about what that video is about. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I would just type in, here's the video title, um, here's the link. Uh, write me a summary and then, and then it would write a summary and the summary uh, it was pretty pretty bad like oh he shows how to cut a mortise and tenon but like it got it got the conversation started and got my brain going okay uh, these are good points here the rest of this is not and then i was able to rewrite it to something that i thought would be a good summary for the video and then uh also i think we you hit on editing it, that we are the editors. And I think we also should stress that we are fact checkers because I found yeah. a lot of things uh, that if it didn't know, it just made up just, yeah. to, just to, uh, just, just to fulfill the question. It didn't say, I don't know. Interesting. It just, it just made it up. Like I, 
I asked it uh, to write a uh, summary about what the Maker's Quest podcast is about. And it says, oh, the Maker's Quest podcast is hosted by Adam something or other. And I was like, no, it's not. Like, I don't even know who this Adam guy is. And so I Googled that Adam, that Adam, whatever his last name was, I can't remember. And he has a podcast about making your life better, not making stuff. So they just went out and found something that was close to my query and wrote an article about it. So interesting. Yeah. Got a, got a fact check for sure. Well, that's definitely one of those learning, learning how to learn this thing is learning what its parameters or where, where its edges are, mm -hmm. what you can trust it to do and what you can't trust it to do. And, you know, even in, even in the coding side of things, it was interesting. Um, like I said, I had asked it to write a JavaScript thing, right? And I threw that into my web page and nothing happened. <laughs> it's like, huh, this is weird. Well, then you look at how do I need to really incorporate JavaScript? Well, there were some tags that you had to have front and back that the website required for that program to work in the format that it was in. So there are definitely, there are definitely edges to AI for sure. Um, and I think that that goes for anything that we learn. There, there are certain things that apply in one medium that may apply slightly differently in another. And, and knowing how those things go, it, it's probably akin to working with softwood versus hardwood. You know, there may be times and and uh, instances where you would use a chisel in one type of wood, and you might use a plane in another because of the way the fibers interact with the blade. And and uh, you know, of course, everybody would say if you're if your chisels are sharp, you would just use them everywhere, but, uh, or if they're sharp enough, I guess, but, but there are different, different ways that we approach everything. And you know how it is, you know, grain can be stringy on one type of wood or even one piece of wood versus another. And, and you approach those things very differently. And, uh, I think everything that we learn, every new subject that we approach, it's, it's learning that nuance after you've, you've learned the base material, how do you apply that nuance out? and use 80% of what you know this way, but adjust 20% to do this other thing. Yeah. So now to, to back up when you're talking about the graphic design one, that a lot of them are paid uh, things. So chat GPT does have a paid thing um, yeah. for new features or whatever that you get additional. But one of the things that they've done is made it free um, so that way it could collect data yeah. from everybody's input. So the more it's used, the smarter it'll get. So do you think the AI is capable of learning or is there someone behind the scenes that's somehow turning the knobs to say, yes, this is good, include that. No, this is not good. Don't include that. Or is the AI able to figure that out? Are we there yet? Yeah. Does the AI learn Who's how to learn? Who? <laughs> yeah. Does the AI know how to learn? That's a good way to put it. it I think there's definitely, you know, there's a way for for AI to be able to look at, here's the data input and output, here's where users either accepted what I put out or they continued to ask questions or continued to give direction because what I put out wasn't what they were looking for. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, like you said, there's a lot of assumptions that the AI will make just to answer the question. And then our job as the user or the editor is to ask more questions or to say, no, instead of this, I need you to do this. And do I think the AI is capable of learning? Absolutely, I do. I think we, we make no mistake, humans are behind the software interfaces. They're behind the software coding. At some point, you you have to turn those knobs and you have to adjust those things, pull the levers and and refine it that way. And uh, I have no doubt, yes, the computer can learn, but it can't learn without a good uh, writer or coder behind that. Yeah. Now it's not to get too much into politics, but that's kind of what really scares me uh, about that, that it pumps out so much information so fast that anybody like myself can just post anything they want on the internet, but now I can post it at light speed because this thing is just yeah. writing things for me and am I facts checking it or not? And we already see that uh, in the news. Um, and let's just say both left and right just fabricate their own little little things or spin their own little things to to try to manipulate their audience into believing the narrative that they want to believe. And so I guess it's like any tool, can it be good used for good or evil? And and I think uh, 
that even applies a little bit, Brian. I hope we don't get too far away from the subject that we're talking about. But when you when you look at at the maker space, at the world of people who make things, and how much bad information is out there about is this tool good or bad? Is this the right way to do this? Is this really dangerous or is this okay? And you know, it's that it's that cringy kind of video or that cringy kind of Instagram or TikTok content that's showing something that you should never do as a as a skilled craftsman. You would never even think about doing it. And the people who are out there trying to learn or acquire a new skill, those are the first videos they run across are generally the worst ones because they have so many views. And sometimes that can be because the algorithm favors them because people send them to their friends like, oh my gosh, look what this idiot did. Right. <laughs> and, and then it has and, a title, how to do this. And then, and then the new guy doesn't know that that's dangerous. And the AI might be picking that up to learn from that. Yeah. Oh God, that's yeah. scary. Yeah. And it is. And I think, I think again, as, as a person trying to learn a new skill, that's what we're talking about, a, a skill, uh, uh, some, some type of new thing. That's part of your due diligence as that learner is to understand back, back to what I said a while back, you got to know what you don't know. What don't I know? And you start with that vocabulary. What are the things that I need to learn? Uh, if it's in welding, you know, it might be different types of wire, different types of metal, different types of gas that you might weld with, uh, different temperatures that things melt together at. All of those things start to inform you about, okay, if, if I know I have four different metals that I want to work with, I know that I'm going to have four different kinds of filler rod or four different kinds of gas that I might have to use. What do I need to know about those? And that will save you from the pitfalls of learn to weld any metal with this one rod <laughs> that, that you see out, you know, it's the carnival barker that, that you see at state fairs that gives you the magic welding rod that'll put any two pieces of metal known to man together. Or, uh, you know, you go to the auto parts store and you see some of the epoxies that they sell. It's guaranteed to be stronger than steel. Well, is it or isn't it? And what's the application? What's the language that we're using to to join things together? Uh, if you could build all furniture with epoxy joints <laughs> and you didn't have to worry about your joinery techniques and that sort of thing, I think we'd all be doing it, but that's not the case. So again, understanding what you know and what you don't know, I think is a terribly important part of being a good learner. Yeah, so uh, I think uh, another tangent on this is to learn how to be a critical thinker as well as learn how to learn. And that kind of goes back to uh, what I was talking about when I was just playing with the computer, like to play with things, to see how they interact and observe how it, what happens uh, will help your critical thinking skills. And then asking lots of questions to make sure you're sussing out the true facts. So maybe chat GPT will train us to ask more questions since you have to ask it questions to get it to flush out its its original answer. Hopefully it doesn't produce a bunch of brain dead people who think everything that spits out of the computer is accurate. Yeah, that's the other the other end of the end of the spectrum. But I guess as my dad would say, the wheat will separate from the chaff very quickly. At some point the cream will rise and everything else will sink to the bottom. So so the folks that do think that chat GPT is just going to spit out magical stuff on the first stroke of the key. We'll we'll learn very quickly that that that's not the case, and and uh, hopefully, hopefully things will balance themselves back out. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, there's certainly going to be a a learning curve, and we'll see uh, the arc of society follow follow that, just like uh, TikTok and Instagram and and all that. I don't know about you, but I've I've become bored of the content because it's so much of the same. It's the same, same joke just told by a different person, right? You can only listen to so many dick jokes before they're not funny anymore. Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but you know what I'm saying? Like I, I, you, I find myself, they, there's all these news stories that talk about being addicted to your phone. And a year yeah. ago, like I could relate to that. Like I, I'd constantly be on my phone. What's what's uh, my friends doing? What's Mark Spagnolo doing? What's uh, Greg doing? What's you know? And I was constantly picking up my phone to see what's going on. But now that it's all kind of just the same type of thing, just a different person posting the same joke or 
there's only so many times you can watch a guy fall off uh, his bike and, you know, it's to where it's just not funny anymore. So now I, I find myself hardly used and I hardly pick up the phone anymore just because it's trained me that, oh, I already know what to expect. Like I, I'm, I'm bored with that. I want to do something different. So society might fully shift to where well, the phone think, is irrelevant. I think that's a, that's a great, a great point, Brian, to, to pick up on is that there's a reason to be an early adopter of technology. And what I'll share with you that I've seen through my life is new technology generally starts off with a very positive signal to noise ratio. There's a lot of positive, there's a lot of signal side, very little noise. You think about the very first time you got on Facebook and you sent a message to three of your friends and those three friends joined Facebook and the three of you were friends and you had conversations. You saw pictures of each other like, hey, what did you do this weekend? And the longer that Facebook has existed, that signal to noise ratio went from a lot of signal and a little bit of noise. Now it's almost all noise and almost no signal. There's there's very little of value unless you really seek it out, unless you're part of a group that that is very focused on what they're doing and they're still focused. I, I know I've been part of several different makers groups on Facebook and the first month of them being around, they're great. People share ideas. It's very positive. And then at some point, somebody degrades and they start talking about politics and telling everybody else they're wrong about politics. And then <laughs> you have to start kicking people out of the group. And then by then everybody's like, ah, no, you know what? Jimmy ruined it for everybody. So forget it. We're out of here. And then the things die. Facebook was like that. Instagram was like that. I, I look at my feed from Instagram from, I don't know, six years ago, seven years ago, however long ago, I, maybe, maybe 10 or 15, who knows? But it was great. All the photos that you were able to see were people you knew. They were contextual. They were interesting. And now all you see is people you don't know from sponsored ads that have nothing to do with what you're on there for. <laughs> So what I've seen is, is when you get a, a new piece of technology and you're an early adopter and, and you're in and part of it, you have a very positive experience the longer that thing trails on. Uh, and not always always the case with some software that are more tools, but, but uh, anyway, the, the longer it exists, sometimes the worse it gets. <laughs> it's weird that way. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, who knows what's going to happen with, with AI? Cause I'm sure it's going to have a long arc of getting better and better and better to the point to where you can't tell that it was written by an AI and it, we're kind of already there. Some of the articles that I yeah. asked it to write for my blog are like, holy crap. I, I, it's like I paid a professional writer to write that. Like if I was an author, uh, if I was someone like writing woodworking magazines, I would be scared for my job right now. Um, I think we're a long ways off from having it take over the architecture world, like the writing world. But I feel like I have a new employee that's writing articles for my blog and writing summaries for me that used to take me hours to, to, to do. And now takes, you know, 10 minutes for them to spit it out for me to fact check it and rewrite a little parts and pieces. And like, I have a new employee that's free. Yeah. And there, you know, I don't know what the what the the grade level of writing that the chat puts out. I would assume it's probably high school, maybe not university level. Yeah, and, definitely and not again, university level. Yeah, and it it'll get there. I guarantee you that it, it will eventually get there. But it, but it goes back to you know the creative side is still up to us. What's interesting is still up to us, and I think that's a fairly human thing when when the computers start to get way more creative than we are i'll be a little more scared and maybe they'll get there i don't know how do you harness a new idea that's never been thought of i don't know if, if our ai is ever going to get there they they'll probably prove me wrong but you know i would say even even with your blog articles you're the one creating a framework it creates the middle of the stuffing and then you're the one editing afterwards to make sure that either it sounds like your voice or it says the things in the way that you would want it to say it. But absolutely it is. It's like a, it's like an employee doing the stuffing part, which takes all the time. Mm -hmm. Now, if I could just get it to edit for me, but I'm sure <laughs> that's coming. I'm sure it'll be editing uh, all kinds of movies and, and uh, YouTube videos and all that. 
Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. Get it to edit video. Yeah. That would be great. Cut out all the bad parts and just put in the good ones. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And this, this could really be a, a rise for small businesses. Cause like you as a small business owner, uh, know that you're competing with China made goods that are super cheap. Uh, same thing on the furniture side, like I, Ikea, uh, super cheap. People have a preconceived uh, notion of what they think a table, a dining table should cost from Ikea. And then they think, well, yeah, a handmade guy, he could probably make a little piece of art thing for me. So maybe it's a few hundred dollars more when in reality, it's a few thousand dollars more. But uh, if you have these free tools that take up that do all the the heavy lifting or all the uh, the behind the scenes stuff for you, um, you might we might close that gap. And also people are going to get tired of the cheap. I know I don't know about you, but I'm super tired of everything that I buy these days is frustrating to use or it falls apart quickly. So hopefully there's going to be a swing back towards small manufacturers in the U.S. Uh, well, creating quality goods. I'll go back to in um, when. When I used AutoCAD, eight hours, 10 hours a day, 40 hours a week for several years, I got so good at using that software that I, I used to say it, and I'll, I'll still say it, I could draw as fast as I could think in that program. When I look at some of the new software and what it takes because of the complexity of what we're doing, I can no longer draw as fast as I can think. And the software is much more capable it's it's output can do much more, much faster. But at the end of the day, my bottleneck is on the input side from my brain into the computer. That's where the block is. And I look at AI and I think, wow, if you could hook AI to fusion and start talking your way through, I need a part that's an inch and a half by two inches by three quarters of an inch. If it could draw it as fast as I could say it and extrude it and have it ready for me to do the next thing to it, I think that's the next level of AI. You know, when, when, if I were to do those operations, well, I'll create a new sketch, create that sketch on this plane, draw a rectangle, edit the dimensions, all of those steps that you have to go through. I think the AI side of things could take care of those things that quickly, just one after another. And that's where as designers, I think we're going to see the next level of learning is understanding how we can incorporate some of these intelligence tools into the tools we already have to speed us up. And, and again, it can be through, here's this framework, here's kind of what I want this piece to look like. Now iterate three different styles of legs for this table. And, you know, as it does that, oh, well, three different styles of tapered legs, three different styles of tapered legs that are made out of two different woods, three different styles of tapered legs made out of two different woods with different joinery between them. And having that capability of just knocking those things out in literally minutes instead of hours, that's going to totally change our ability as designers, as creative people to understand what, what we're capable of making a project into and really pushing those boundaries that in years past would have, you know, especially if you're a designer and a maker, you, you have a finite amount of time and squishing down that design side so you can get to the fabrication side, I think is is paramount to us moving to that next level. Yeah. When you're talking about uh, make a uh, table leg with three different curves or three different tapers, that's kind of the part that sets off my old curmudgeon uh, mind because when I design, that's one of the things that I really like about SketchUp is I can just like, okay, part of the design process is pulling my mouse along with the curve tool, watching the curve until I think, yeah, that looks about right. And then click and sets it in stone. And that uh, input thing that you talked about, that's part of what's preventing me from using Fusion 360 more often than I do, because I don't want to have to set the axes. I don't want to have to define my material. I don't want to have to create a sketch plane because I want it to draw on this side instead of this side. Uh, none of that exists in SketchUp you just start drawing like you're sketching on a sketch pad and uh, all that inputs just slows me down and it's like breaks my flow state. So if AI could know that, okay, the, the instead of having to set the, uh, the axes is, do they call it the axes in 
and fusion as well, whatever the, the axes, the planes, yeah, the planes, what, instead of having to set that, if the AI just knew, okay, he drew a, a rectangle that's, that's uh or a cube, that's a rectangle shape that's longer than it is wide, then it knows that, okay, the grain's going to run in that direction. So we're going to set the axes that direction. And if it's wrong, he can go back and change it then. But most of the time, if it has that understanding, it's going to be right 99% of the time. Yeah. And that would that would free up design for me because then I'm not I'm not going back and setting up all that the materials and axes and all of that. Yeah. I just grab and... the extrude tool and pull it out and there's a Bart. And it knows it's a <laughs> Yeah. And and I'll tell you, Brian, that uh, back to old dogs and new tricks and all that kind of stuff. That's why I still draw with pencil. And I have an iPad that I draw on. I have a, a Autodesk sketchbook is the the program I use, but I feel like I can iterate through design things with an eraser so much faster than I can in the computer. And I can mm-hmm. I can get it 90% of the way out of my head and onto paper very, very quickly. When I go into the computer, yeah, there you go. Trace paper. You don't I even need it. eraser. You just move on to that's, the next side. That's right. Uh in in the iPad though the eraser is such a slick tool uh, uh, to be able to use because you can layer things and erase on. Oh yeah, I forgot layers. we were talking about the iPad. I was, yeah, I was still but, stuck on paper. But <clears throat> but even on paper, I can do it pretty quickly yeah. too because I draw really light and then I start to darken things as they become more solid, right? Yeah, right. And and uh, but I see you know when I go into Fusion, when I finally do start modeling in Fusion, I usually know what all my dimensions are going to be by the time I get there. That way, I'm not fumbling through that process of, well, is it six? Nope. Erase six. Is it six and a half? No, erase six and a half. Is it seven? <laughs> and that, that when you're in a creative flow state, doing those things will completely just grind you to a halt and any, any cool ideas that you had in your head start to just disappear. So I find capturing the quick photo, the photograph of what I want is done best through the pencil. And then uh, when I getting ready to machine something or, or make it real life. Uh, I think it, it is that that's when I go into the computer and let's make this a technical drawing rather than a creative drawing. Yeah. I think that's especially uh, uh, important if you have like a neurodivergent brain, like ADHD, uh, my brain will skip from one thought to the next and I'll lose track of what I was saying. And that happens in this podcast uh, sure. from time to time. I'll be going along and then I'll have a new thought. And I was like, well, I'm not finished with this thought. So I need to finish this thought before I start my new thought. Now, what was my original thought? Now I lost both thoughts, but that's okay because, you know, that's that's just how my brain works. And so uh, if I have to uh, erase something, that's just that's just too much time that gives my brain to move off to something else, to the next cool idea or the next cool thing that that I need something that just moves fast. And I need to build my skills so I can capture my drawing skills so I can capture my brain as it's going along. That's yeah, my biggest challenge in designing, I think. I think you'll see, I think if you if you look through, and of course I study architects because those are the people, but if you look at some of the great architects and, and the sketches they do for the ideas they have, they're incredibly messy sketches. And if you look through my sketchbooks, you'll see drawings on top of drawings on top of drawings, because as I'm doing something, I'm, I'm thinking through those iterations. I don't have time to stop and get a new piece of paper. It just goes right down on top of it. And when I'm, I'm showing my colleagues, some of the, you know, here's the idea. And they're like, which one is it? What is this? Yeah. <laughs> How do I look at it? And I, I kind of have to back off and circle just just pay attention to this one little spot on the paper and and that's what i'm talking about and it, and if you if you look at all of it you can see the process <laughs> that you go to to get to the end one mm-hmm. but i think the reason some of those sketches are so messy that that you see you know some of the famous architects and other designers is because they're trying to get it down so fast because they have another idea right behind it that needs to come out too <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, since we've been, we've been hanging out on this and, and all our uh, behind the scenes talks, I think we actually talked about this on one of the episodes about Frank Gehry and yeah. his scribbled drawings. And I've always, I look at his drawings and be like, okay, it looks like a scribbled mess. But then when you hold it up next to the building, you can see where it's going. So uh, I I have been experimenting with, with that. You probably, I don't know if I'm holding it in front of the oh, camera. There we go. Now I can see it. Did it focus? Yep. Sort of. Anyways, so you probably have no idea what that is. Right. Yeah. So 
but I know exactly what it is. And I now have a 3D model in SketchUp that I don't think I could have created without sketching it out really quick. And for people that are listening to this and not watching the video, uh, I'll put a um, picture in the, in the show notes of what I held up of my scribble drawing. But what that is, is this is this is a mirror. This is a live edge slab that the mirror is sitting into. Uh, this is an arc, just a decorative arc. And then this board is above the mirror that has puck lights in it. So you can see, you know, light up your face. And then this thing right here is a cabinet. So yep. that's my, that's my vanity design. That, so that was that makes like, complete sense. Yeah. So once you, once you know what it is, but that's just was my quick, like, all right, I have this idea of how I want it to look because all these interior designers, uh, like this round mirror that's backlit. I, I went to a client's house and I used their restroom that the interior designer I worked with on a project did that on. And I couldn't really see my face in the mirror because the, the back lighting doesn't light your face and there was no puck lights above it. So that's kind of how I got to that design idea. And then I pitched it to her and then it was too expensive or she didn't like it because she didn't think of it. But either way, that happens, uh, especially in the design industry, because everybody wants to put their name on the design. But oh, yeah. uh, um, but yeah, so that was just like my really quick Frank Gehry drawing, not to get distracted, just it just kind of flew out. And then I was able to figure out all the rest of the stuff later. Yeah, no, I, I do those scribbly drawings all the time. And I find myself as I've gotten older, I've gotten a little smarter. After I get down the, the basic, uh, whatever it is, proportions or forms that I want to spit out of my head, I write little notes <laughs> on the drawing so that later, you know, if it's some of my drawings will sit around for two or three years and then I'll open them back up. And it's like, oh, yeah, I got to make that thing. And and I do. And, it, and part of that is my backlog of stuff that I want to do in the shop and, and the amount of time that I have to do it. Sometimes it, it's going to be two or three years before I get to something or, or longer. Um, and having those little notes on there helps me decipher <laughs> the Rosetta stone, so to speak of, of whatever drawing it was. And it's like, you know, sometimes I'll look at it and I'm like, Oh yeah, that's a really weird way to look at it, but I get it, you know? Yeah. And uh, I mean, even stuff out of my own brain sometimes confuses me. So I think it's, it's just a great tool as designers and, and uh, you know, back to, back to what we're talking about is, is learning how to learn, right. When you're approached with, or when you're faced with, new things that, that you're trying to pick up and you don't exactly understand how how to acquire those skills. I think part of that is is those really uh, sort of quick iterations of of whatever it is that you're trying to learn and and trying to make that into something and getting ideas out of your head very quickly and, and thoughts out of your head. And it all kind of goes together. It's it's pretty interesting little puzzle when you sit back and see all the pieces uh, hopefully joined together in tandem or in, in concert to make a big image of something yes. in the blank there. So now learning how to learn as you've learned things over your time and you look back at that drawing from three years ago, how much of it is still relevant today? Do you, how much do you want to change? Does that happen to you a lot? Like you're like, Oh, that was a good idea, but I have way more skill now. I can make it better. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I absolutely think so. Every day I feel like I improve my approach to things. And the way I think about things, and I'm always looking for a, a better way, you know, some people would say a better mousetrap. That's that's not essentially what it is, but a better way to approach and solve the problem. And and generally that that is about simplification. The more simple and refined you can make the solution, I feel like the better that solution is. And that does take a lot of time and a lot of effort to make things look very simple. And so when I take those sketches that are just out of the frying pan and onto the sketching paper, they're as raw as raw can get. They're not refined at all. It's just, what is the idea? What is it you're trying to do? And once you put it down on paper, you may not look at it for two or three more years, but believe me, it's in the back of your brain stirring. And your brain is constantly trying to look at that thing. Even if you've forgotten completely about it, I feel like you're still solving that problem. And when you open those sketchbooks up, two or three years later, or you open a fusion file or you open whatever it is, two or three years later, you will have a different approach to it. And I think that's the maturity of a designer is, can you step back, redo those drawings and make it better? Or are you just going to settle 
for the thing that came out of your brain three years ago and just go with it. <laughs> it's often often a, a question of how much time are you going to spend, but I, I think the answer there lies in in how how much maturity you have as a designer or a maker. Yeah. So uh, should we start to uh, to wrap it up here? We've been on in about an hour or so. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I hope, I don't know. For me, this is always an interesting trip to take. Uh, I learn as much from talking about these subjects as I do, uh, as I have before I show up. I think it's it's always very insightful to to think about yourself from a different perspective and think about internally how you process things. Yeah, the conversation sparks new ideas, I think, at least for me anyway. For sure. And well, yeah, I guess we can wrap it up there. I guess in closing, I'd say, you know, don't ever be afraid to approach something new. I think that's how we all improve ourselves. And it's it's that thing that makes life interesting is putting something new under your belt and uh, in your ability list. So for this episode, I'm Greg Porter. You can catch me at Greg's Garage and Skyscraper Guitars on both YouTube and Instagram. All right. And I'm Brian Benham. You can find all the links to Brian Benham at brianbenham.com. And the show notes are at the Maker's Quest podcast. And for this show, we're definitely going to use chat GPT to write at least the summary and see what happens. So if you can uh, decipher whether or not I edited it or not, uh, well, well, you'll you'll never really know, I guess, because I probably won't ever tell you. So <laughs> thanks for listening. <laughs>